0: Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. The World Health Assembly is the governing body of the World Health Organization, and it meets annually in May. However, for only the second time in the history of the WHO, the World Health Assembly gathered for a special session. From November 29th to December 1st, member states convened to consider whether or not they should seek to create some sort of new treaty, convention, accord, or other international instrument on pandemic preparedness and response. And this meeting, of course, occurred just as the new Omicron variant of COVID-19 was popping up in countries around the world, prompting travel bans focused on Southern Africa. On the line to help us understand what happened at this special session of the World Health Assembly and what it means for progress towards an international agreement of some sort on pandemic preparedness and response is Kate Dodson. She is the Vice President for Global Health at the United Nations Foundation. Today's episode is the debut of a partnership between the Global Dispatches podcast and Twitter. Twitter recently launched an audio platform called Twitter Spaces, and the company is backing a number of content creators, of which I am one, to integrate spaces into our work. What this means for you, the podcast listeners, well, first you should follow me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg, if you don't already. Uh, And if you do follow me, you'll have the opportunity to listen to these episodes as they are recorded live via Twitter Spaces, and this will probably include opportunities for audience participation. If you are not into Twitter, totally fine. Just keep on listening as usual, and I will keep publishing episodes as usual two a week, every week. For eternity. All right, here is my conversation with Kate Dodson of the United Nations Foundation. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Eslanyan from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Uh, so, Kate, we are speaking just a few days, or I think just like a day actually, after the World Health Assembly, which is the governing body of the World Health Organization, held an extraordinary special session. Uh, we will spend a good deal of time today discussing what happened at that special session and its implications for the global adoption of a potential treaty on pandemic response and preparedness. But before we get there, I do want to kick off by asking you about this new Omicron variant. Uh, You are of the global health community and very plugged into conversations happening at the World Health Organization, the NGO community, and health researchers. Uh, How would you describe the tenor of conversation about this new variant in your community right now? What, What are you hearing?
1: Thanks, Mark. And it is feels very fitting, unfortunately, to start a conversation around how to prevent future pandemics by talking about what has turned into a very significant variant of concern. That's actually a classification that WHO has given Omicron, um, given uh, its potential, uh, given what it looks like. Um, and The reality is, is that it's still early days, right? There's a lot of attention and focus on this. The World Health Organization has a global R&D, research and development uh, network, that is activated on this already, trying to align the scientific community around what we do know, what we don't know, what are really key lines of inquiry to explore further, um, and all of that is underway so that the world can better understand what is this threat that we're facing, how serious might it be. The reality is we're still, you know, days or maybe longer away from, un- from really understanding The potential of this variant, how transmissible is it vice uh, uh, Delta uh, variant, for instance, how severe is it, how lethal might it be relative to existing variants, it's still too early to really understand that, although there is data emerging out of South Africa, even just today. But those are some of the key questions that uh, folks are looking into and and that data should be available in the days and weeks to come. Uh, There's obviously lots of other kind of contingency thinking and planning around how do you marshal the right companies to the right places at the right times. Uh, Where WHO is now is emphasizing that we know the proven health public health measures and clinical measures that can help uh, against Delta and all other strains of this virus. Um, We know they work. It is very likely they also work in the context of Omicron. Um, And that's what we need to make sure that uh, the broader public, that policymakers really understand that it's not time to take your eye off the ball of these proven public health measures that we already have, the tools in our toolbox.
0: So despite the fact that we don't know very much about this new variant, or perhaps even because of it, Uh, we've seen countries have this kind of knee-jerk response to shutting down travel, mostly from countries in Southern Africa. Uh, What has been the response among actual public health professionals uh, and around the WHO as well about this kind of knee-jerk response of of seeking to shut out from international travel, say South Africa?
1: So this is a... Well worn problem um, in the context of um, emerging uh, epidemics or kind of uh, public health areas of concern is that there can be a knee jerk reaction, right? And you have to create both incentives for countries to report early if they are facing a new threat, a novel threat, something that is worth kind of keeping an eye on. That's their obligation under the international health regulations through the World Health Organization, that's an international legal obligation they have, is early notification. But it can come with these challenges, these very severe economic impacts, like um, cutting off uh, travel. And so that can create a perverse incentive to hide. This is well worn. This has been a problem for decades. The international health regulations tried to address this by leveling the playing field and getting kind of a positive environment, enabling environment for all countries to detect and to detect quickly and report early.
0: But, and I should say, the international health, the, the international yeah. health regulations, which you just referred to, are a set of reforms enacted by the World Health Organization in 2005 as a response to the. Uh, to the SARS epidemic, uh, pandemic Mm -hmm. of, of, I think it was like 2003, 2004. I had that kind of set rules of the road for how to deal with, with these, uh, kind of pandemics. I I guess maybe my own concern and perhaps I'm editorializing here is that, you know, South Africa did the right thing by alerting Mm -hmm. the world to what its scientists found out and they were Punished for it. And yeah. one wonders that if, you know, if a new variant somewhere around the world is discovered, if the decision to let the world know about this will no longer be a purely scientific one, which uh, South Africa did by sharing its information, but rather will be politicized, uh, which could be problematic. And perhaps these near term, knee jerk travel bans could do more harm than good in the long term.
1: That's right. Um, And you're right to point out that the international health regulations were revised and adopted by all member states in 2005 as a reaction to SARS. Countries didn't report SARS cases early, and this was part of the reaction to it. Let's try to create a greater enabling environment for countries to report um, you asked initially what was what's been the reaction in the global health community. Well, you don't need to look further than the the special session that was this week of the World Health Assembly, where ministers of health and other stakeholders got to be on the record. Omicron was high on their uh, radar screen, and many applauded and noted how important it has been for South Africa and Botswana to have reported so rapidly. Um, tried to create that kind of positive signal. Um, Countries in Sub-Saharan, especially, but others as well, really decried that knee-jerk reaction that you spoke of, the travel bans that went into effect quite quickly. We know that travel bans don't spread, don't stop the spread uh, for very long. Uh, we know they have severe economic consequences. So um, those countries that were on the record on this earlier this week were trying to implore um, that travel bans stop being a part of the equation. Because it will create that chilling effect for future um, willingness of countries to raise their hand and give notice when, as they should... When the world's facing a future threat. Uh,
0: So let's talk about this special session of the World Health Assembly. It's my understanding that this is only like the second time in the probably 76-year history, I'm guessing, of the World Health Organization or or thereabouts in which a special session like this has been called. Uh, Why was it called and what happened at the special session?
1: Uh, Yeah, so this was the second only special session of the World Health Assembly. As you mentioned, it's the governing body for the World Health Organization. Every uh, government that is a member state to WHO has a seat at this table. Um, I'll note, just for clarification, last year, the World Health Assembly met two times. It met once in May and it met once in the late fall. That was actually the same session, but it was adjourned. Um, And that was because of the impact of COVID. Um, It was adjourned for a brief, for a multi-month pause. And that was because of COVID, the kind of that it was on the rise in the spring of 2020. They needed to solve for how to assemble the governing uh, conversation safely. So they convened in two parts in May 2020 around COVID, and the kind of remainder of WHO's governing agenda was taken up late fall 2020. This was different. It's called a special session. Um, And it was exclusively dedicated to exploring the benefits of an international instrument, which is just kind of a a legally term for a a potential pandemic Mm -hmm. treaty or accord, uh, around Pandemic Prevention Preparedness and Response, member states asked for it at the World Health Assembly in May, at the annual meeting in May, because they recognized both the urgency of the moment, that we can't wait a whole year before member states reconvene around this question and whether or not it be a useful tool in our future toolbox for preventing pandemics, but they also recognized that they needed dedicated space for it. WHO as you might imagine and the World Health Assembly has a wide-ranging agenda. They talk about HIV most years. They talk about polio. They talk about non-communicable diseases, universal health coverage. What member states felt was they needed a dedicated process and conversation around squarely around this issue given its uh given its import. Uh,
0: so in theory like what would be included in such a, a treaty, some sort of pandemic accord?
1: Well, now you're getting into the where the rubber hits the road, and that's the right question to ask. And it's one that member states have been asking since May. And frankly, many were asking before then when this idea first came up last winter. Um, the There's a lot of things that could be covered in a new international instrument. It could cover things like Can you codify the norms around access to novel countermeasures, new vaccines, new therapeutics, even, frankly, personal protective equipment, commodities that are very likely to be in short supply in the context of a health threat, of a pandemic threat? Can you capture the kind of rights and norms around who should have access to that equitably. So frankly, we don't wind up in a situation like we are now where, you know, only 8% or or where very little of the COVID vaccines are accessed in low-income countries. We could talk a little bit more about that too. So that's one potential lane. Can you talk about equitable access to countermeasures? Another lane is can you strengthen the kind of, rights obligations norms incentives and or sanctions around early detection and reporting exactly what we were talking about earlier in omicron can you create a stronger set of both incentives and um and uh punishments if maybe even around early detection and and the obligations that countries have to that there's aspects of um ensuring and enshrining human rights considerations when countries are designing their pandemic response strategies. There's a lot of issues around how do you um, capture a spirit of one health and whole of government approaches. Pandemics are sometimes not just exclusive in the human domain. They may have a zoonotic element, a zoonotic element, um, they certainly require whole-of-government responses, so can you can you capture um, the kinds of responsibilities, norms, and collective uh, uh, accountability around issues of financing, around issues of trade, around lots of other issues that might come up? So the reality is this future instrument could cover any number of those issues, or it could cover a very small segment. And that was a big part of what we heard about in this special session from many member states, is that it's really important to focus first on what what are the content lanes of a future instrument, and then get to writing it.
0: And you know, I have been covering the United Nations uh, for long enough to have seen not processes like this, because um, there is actually only one previous, I think we'll, we'll get to process in a second. There's one previous kind of guidepost for how this might unfold, which is the framework convention on tobacco control, which we'll, we'll, we can talk about process in a minute, because process is very expen- uh, important in these situations. Um But you know, you have seen, I have seen having covered the United Nations for so long, that in situations like this, you see like negotiating blocks emerge Mm -hmm. where like-minded countries band together to push issues of of common interests. Have you sort of seen any of those blocks emerging just yet? Or is this still a little early in the process?
1: Oh, absolutely. They've already been emerging. Frankly, Mm. the first way to think about it is the block around supporting a treaty in and of itself almost regardless of the content right that that, that a treaty could be a really important instrument there's a, a group of missions and member states called the group of friends of the treaty um there's a, a they corresponds highly to a set of more than two dozen heads of state that went on the record this in march saying we need a new instrument we need a treaty and a treaty would help create rules for the rules of the road for future pandemic threats. So that in and of itself is kind of a negotiating block, right? And the, that group of the friends of the treaty were very active, have been very active um, in the lead up to this special session and no doubt will continue to be.
0: So what happened at, or sorry, should, let me just ask, so like what happened yeah. at the special session yeah. that sort of Tipped the balance towards actually having and agreeing to a, a treaty. Like, did certain countries finally come on board, and that provided the momentum necessary that to suggest that there would be some consensus around having a treaty like this?
1: Yes. So, there. What happened in May at the World Health Assembly officially was that both this special session was agreed to, and what's called a working group of member states. Any member state could participate in it. You know, well over hundred did um, in designing what the outcome should look like for this special session. So that working group held at least four meetings. They held deep dive sessions on any number of these issues that we've already talked about, like equitable access to countermeasures. Um, and they, as member states, through that process starting in the summer, created the kind of consensus that allowed for the special session to gavel in its resolution, which it did successfully and frankly, seven hours early on Wednesday morning. Um, So a lot of that work had been done ahead of time. And where they wound up, I think, is a strong compromise of the divergent points of view. Um, And that compromise has kind of a few main components. One is that not all the eggs are in the pandemic treaty basket. Um, There are other ways that WHO's work can be strengthened going forward, that for instance, the international health regulations could be strengthened going forward, that should continue apace. So that's one that was a priority for several member states and that kind of is part of the path forward. A second piece of the puzzle is that let's sort the content first before we decide the dra- the text of the instrument, right? What are these content lanes that in kind of domains that a treaty should cover? That was a key priority we know, for instance, for the United States government. They said, you know, a, we can't sign onto a treaty not knowing as an empty vessel. We need to understand what are the content lanes what are the what are the I- areas where it would try to solve and then let's start negotiating text so that was a victory and that's a key part of the path forward and that's actually what the resolution said is that governments will first start to explore those themes next spring of 2022 before next summer turning to the actual drafting of text mm. The third commitment though was obviously the priority of the group of friends of the treaty and many others was that in this resolution through an inner through an intergovernmental negotiating body that work would be done to negotiate text for an international instrument like a treaty. So have kind of a victory on all three fronts for yeah. the stakeholders involved with with key priorities that they each had.
0: And I'm glad that you are going into such depth about process because I have been doing this long enough to know that around the United Nations and situations like this, process dictates outcome. So how the sort of whole treaty process is designed, you know, is is entirely almost indicative and and determinative of what the uh, final document will look like. And one I think interesting wrinkle and something to note is that part of embedded in part of this process is not an outcome in which this will produce a treaty document that like the United States Senate will have to ratify. Correct. It's going to be a little something different, right? It's going to use the constitution of the world health organization itself. Can you explain that a little bit?
1: Well, so Mark, I think what you raise is an important question. Um, and I use the word instrument. WHO kind of today is starting to use the word accord. Some other stakeholders using that word because it actually is purposefully ambiguous the resolution doesn't commit the member states to negotiate a framework convention, which is, you know, the model that you brought up before with tobacco control, one that would require, you know, for instance, in the United States context, Senate ratification, um, there are, it uses the word instrument in a way that creates flexibility. So and basically, this is the whole argument that, that, kind of treaty fence sitters were suggesting let's have form follow function let's start with the function and really understand what this is and then we can decide whether or how much it's important to have something that's fully legally binding with sanctions etc something that's more norms creating something that's more in the enabling environment around you know or is it all of the above um, and so the, the, the actual form and whether it's a framework convention or some other instrument um, is still up for grabs. And that's part of what member states will actually come back together. Once they talk about content, will come back together to decide upon starting next summer.
0: Uh, you just sort of teased this, but what is the next key inflection point that you will be looking towards that will suggest to you how this process is unfolding?
1: So the resolution asks that member states hold their first meeting of this new negotiating body by March 1st, 2022. And in that meeting, they're expected to elect their co-chairs and vice-chairs. Typically and historically, this is one per WHO region. That that group then also defines the timelines uh, and uh, methods of its work, et cetera. That's the first gate. We heard, for instance, Brazil raise their hand in the special session and say, "We want to have a leadership role." Brazil is a treaty skeptic. I can probably speak plainly and say that. You know, certainly their intervention said that. If they're elected into a leadership role, that creates a different kind of pathway than if the EU is elected into a treaty leadership position. They've been core, or sorry, an IMB position, the negotiating body leadership position. They've been key treaty proponents. So that's the first gate, is who is in the leadership, because that will dictate pace, scope, ambition, whether you get to foot dragging or whether you get to, you know, really trying to positively move the needle. Um, as I mentioned, I, I invoked the summer a lot, The the attempt is for that there be kind of a working draft uh, in next summer, and then real negotiations begin um, a check-in to the World Health Assembly in May 2023, and the intent is that an outcome is submitted for consideration to the World Health Assembly in May 2024, so about a two-and-a-half-year process.
0: All right. Well, we'll check back with you throughout this process. Thank you so much, Kate. Thanks, Mark. All right. Big thank you for listening. Thank you to Kate Dodson for speaking with me using this new platform. I asked Kate specifically on this show as the debut guest here because I knew she would be great uh, as always. She's a regular on other show and I really appreciate it. And of course, follow me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg, and you will get notified when I am recording one of these episodes live via Twitter Spaces. It'll be an interesting uh, experiment. It's going to happen at least for the next three months, but we'll see what happens. All right, see you next time. Bye.